Welcome to the One Broken Cog Podcast. Join John and Brian as they share small adjustments that lead to major impacts. One Broken Cog, Brian Olson here with my very special guest who is none other than Gina Osborne. Now to give you some background on Gina, she is a retired FBI agent and executive, Army veteran, international speaker, executive coach, and podcast host. She specializes in leadership, navigating chaos, crisis, and change international terrorism, cyber crimes, female empowerment, and coaching women who work in male-dominated workplaces. Now, having responded to catastrophic terrorist attacks and cyber hacks as an FBI special agent and chasing Cold War spies in the Army, she shares tools and techniques with her clients to control chaos, manage crises, and embrace change as an opportunity. She also hosts Lead Like a Lady, a real-life podcast featuring women who have risen to the top in non-traditional fields. Gina, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brian. You know, I have to ask you, Gina, right out of the gate. Last night I was on YouTube and I saw an update on the Ghislaine Maxwell case. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it or not, but apparently new charges have just dropped. And I figure, hey, I'm talking to Gina tomorrow. Might as well ask her if she's been following and what she thinks about this. Yes. In fact, on my last podcast, I had a podcast last year called Behind the Crime Scene, and I was doing uh, special moments of with Ghislaine Maxwell. Yes, it is. So they must, they, it sounds to me like they found another victim. And so they're adding more charges to her. So uh, hopefully she's yeah. to see the light of day. Yeah. 14 years old, you know, there was like sex trafficking, something like that. Some crazy stuff. What a sick and depraved woman this person is, huh? Yeah, no, I'll tell you. And uh, when they were trying to get her out, I think it was sometime last year, maybe I forget when it was, but yeah, they were petitioning to get her out of prison uh, because I think as recall she's still in solitary confinement unless something has changed and I missed it but yeah it's not uh it's not fun to be in a jail when you're all by yourself all day every day it kind of makes you go nuts I would imagine yeah I guess their fear is they may uh somebody may end up saving the taxpayers a lot of money right so exactly yeah I know that uh you know you never know I mean who knows if she's on suicide watch like uh like Jeffrey was but uh only time will tell right Exactly. Yes, exactly. I worked uh, crimes against children. I had a squad, a couple of squads that worked that uh, violation. And I'll tell you, those people who work those cases are the biggest heroes I've ever met because having to deal with predators, having to deal with victims, having to deal with spouses who find out that their their spouses are predators. Yeah, it's uh, it is quite uh, quite a difficult violation to work. So my my hat is off to those folks. Oh man, it, it must, must take such restraint to not want to just give them a piece of your mind or to physically, you know, give them a receipt, so to speak, right? I mean, that must be really difficult. You know, those are probably the most respectful search warrants that I've ever been on is crimes against children. And it, it blows my mind how respectful they are, how professional they are when they go out there and they're searching and, you know, they're seizing the computers to look for child pornography and all of that. But they are the most respectful um, group of people I've ever worked with. So, yeah. And they must have a really good outlet outside of work, I'll tell you. But so I know we'll, we'll talk about some of your stories. It's an amazing journey you've had. And we'll talk about your current business. I know you got your start in the Army. We'll love to hear about that story. What prompted you to join uh, the Army to begin with? Sure. Well, I've always wanted to be a writer. That was one thing that I used to write uh, Laverne and Shirley and Happy Days episodes when I was in junior high school. I'm going to date myself a little bit. Nice. And, uh, and I w- was also interested in the Cold War. Anything with the CIA and the KGB, that's something that I was really fascinated by. So I wanted to work for the CIA. 
And I was in my second year of college uh, here in Orange County, California. I was a cocktail waitress at a comedy club. And in my second year of college, a young man came up to me and started talking to me about the Army's counterintelligence program, how I can live overseas, I can chase spies, I can get my education, I could live in the condos, I mean, all of the Private Benjamin stuff. <laughs> and I uh, went down the next day and I signed up and eight months later, I was eating dirt at Fort Jackson, South Carolina in basic training. And uh, I was very, very fortunate. I did uh, almost six years in Belgium and in Germany. And I worked the highest profile espionage cases in the European theater for about three and a half years during that time. Wow. Was it a tough decision to make or was it your, your mind was set on it? You know, when I, when I have my mind made up as to what I want to do, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get there. And so, yeah, my, my father was a Marine and he uh, wanted boys. So both my sister and I uh, grew up like boys. So I wasn't really... <laughs> afraid of going into the unknown like that. Um, I, I mean, it was pretty fit, physically fit. Uh, but yeah, it's kind of unnerving to have uh, grown men screaming at you. But once you get used to that, uh, it went by, the time went by pretty fast. How was it as a female? Did they take it a little bit easier on you or was it a little bit tougher? How was it? Oh, no, 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 no. We, uh, <laughs> it was <laughs> back in the day, uh, this was back in 87, uh, you had the female platoons and you had the male platoons. But one day somebody woke up, a decision maker at Fort Jackson, South Carolina, and wanted to see if the women could train with the men. So instead of taking half of a women's platoon and half of a men's platoon and you know merging them, they chose five of us out of the female platoon and put us in with a bunch of men who hadn't seen women in about, I don't know, five oh. weeks. So uh, we knew we couldn't be the worst uh, and we knew we weren't going to be the best. We just needed to keep up. And it was probably another seven or eight years before they actually integrated the training. But, you know, things like that. <laughs> One day you're you're working, you're in a woman's platoon and then the next day uh, you're kind of loaned off to the men for for a week. Uh, but it was a good <laughs> experience and we made it. So that's that's something that uh, I can be proud of. Does it kind of desensitize you in a little a little bit when you're dealing with you know male soldiers and the way they act towards women? Is did it uh, kind of change you a little bit, or was it just you, you kind of black that part out, or just you know kind of tunnel vision? You know, I think it's it's funny because I've had a lot of conversations like that lately about the sexual harassment that's still going on in the army. And uh, it can be really, really bad. I've seen it very, very bad, um, but you just have to navigate it in such a way that you're going to continue to be able to reach your goals. Um, back then, I think maybe fewer than 10% of the soldiers were women, but I was very, very fortunate. Um, I work in counterintelligence. I had a great team of people that I worked with and uh, yeah, were there comments? Were there you know times that were uncomfortable? Sure, but uh, nothing knocked me off track of you know getting my degree, having the experience of a lifetime, and then eventually working for the FBI. That's amazing. When you left the military, did you carry any of that PTSD? Because you hear a lot about that people keep it buried within. They don't recognize it, or or does that not affect you? Well, I went, I was there from the end of the Cold War into the Gulf War. And fortunate, it was very fortunate that I stayed in um, Germany. I worked a lot of different espionage cases. And one case that I worked was where a soldier in Baumholder, Germany was trying to sell troop deployment information out to a Middle Eastern entity during the first Gulf War. So, you know, I think just seeing all of that, I, I really didn't get into any combat situations to get the PTSD, but, um, you know, just working 
in scenarios where, um, you know, that, that there are so high stakes, you definitely, um, it's definitely a wake up call for sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So when you left the military, when did you make that decision to join the FBI? Is this something you were thinking about or it just came up? You know, originally I wanted to work for the CIA and then that didn't work out. Um, I got out of the military at a time when the government was downsizing and then the opportunity for the FBI came up and I applied and it was an 18 month uh, (laughs) application process. And back then, 14% of the agents were women. So a little bit more than uh, in the, in the military, but yeah, I think out of every 107 applicants, only one person actually made it into the FBI Academy. So it was super, super competitive back then, but I made it and I was very proud to make it. And uh, yeah, it was that, that was an amazing experience. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, You know, it's funny. I was watching that movie, The Recruit with Al Pacino, you know, about the FBI training. I would love to hear about the actual training process. You know, how many people actually make it through what it consisted of? Yeah, sure. So back then it was every two weeks, a new class went through and there were 50 50 of us in a class. We actually had a lot of women in our class. We had, I think, 10. So, uh, but what you do is you The interesting thing about the FBI Academy is that the average age going through is 31 years old. So it's usually a second career or even almost a third career for some people because you can go up to age 37 and you learn how to be an FBI agent, interviewing, legal aspects. I mean, all of the classroom stuff. And then you have to qualify. Back then you had to qualify with a shotgun, an MP5 and a a pistol. And you would have to do defensive tactics, uh, you know, learning how to arrest people, put the handcuffs on, things like that. And then we would go out uh, to do the practical applications at a place called Hogan's Alley, which is an actual town on the FBI Academy compound where they had a bank and they had a trailer park and they had a hotel and they had all of these different er- uh, places that you would go and you'd make arrests and do search warrants and they'd throw a whole lot of different things at you. So, yeah, so there was, there was a lot to learn and um, all of, I think all, but maybe one or two of our class made it through. I think we had an injury or two. I can't remember that far back, but uh, get to the Academy. You usually make it through because uh, there's been so much vetting for you. Oh, that's great. No, I love that. What, what's the most difficult part of the training? Gosh, you know, I think they just really cram a lot into each week. So you could, you know, have a firearms qualification where you're having, you know, a, a test at the, at Hogan's Alley, or you could have a big law te- legal test or something. So they just crammed so much and put a lot of stress and um, back then we had physical fitness where we had to pass PT, uh, physical fitness tests and all of that. So you're constantly doing something. But the one thing about the FBI is they hire people who, you know, have good judgment, who can solve problems and who can handle that type of stress. So, um, so yeah, we didn't uh, lose anybody in my class for, for, you know, not being able to handle the curriculum. Uh, but yeah, it's, 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 that's the stressful part is just getting through the whole thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you see a lot of the, the movies, they always talk about psychology, right? You have a lot of psychological training and do they ever try to break you down mentally? Is it very is stressful mentally? You know, in the army, yes. Uh, in the FBI, uh, they really didn't. Um, it was more like a, a gentleman or a gentlewoman's course. Uh, it was nothing like 
basic training in the army at all, but they still made us, you know, run a lot and we had to do the obstacle course. And so it was still very physically taxing um, in addition to, you know, making sure that you qualify, because if you don't qualify, then, then you're out. So there are a lot of opportunities for you to get kicked out of the academy. So I think that's probably where the stress came from is if you didn't pass something, then you're going to get kicked out. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. At what point do they identify what type of work you're going to be doing for them? Like what field of expertise you're going to be having? What they do is in the, in the first week that you're there, they ask you to fill out a sheet, a list of 56 field offices. And they say, okay, where do you want to go? Number one, number two, number three, where do you want to go? 56, right? So you kind of list uh, in priority where you want to go because you don't know where the FBI is going to send you. And then in the fifth week, they tell you where you're going to go. And then I, and right before I graduated, I found out. So my assignment was in Los Angeles. And then they wound up assigning me to the Santa Ana resident agency, which is in Orange County. So my first arrest was across the street from my high school. So I went home and all three of my roommates at Quantico wound up going to New York. And I'm not sure all three of them really wanted to go to New York, but (laughs) that's the way, that's the way it worked. (laughs) What do you think the the key to success is for an FBI agent? What makes a really great agent? You know, just working hard and really being observant and just, I remember Louis Free, who was my director and I call him my director because he's the one who gave me my creds you know, he used to talk about how you just pull the thread because you never know what's going to be at the end of the long piece of thread. And, and, and I think that's where you are really good as an agent is you just continue to pull the thread and you have to be creative because there are times when you can't get evidence um, or there is no evidence that's going to prove somebody did something really, really bad. So you have to be creative with the way that you charge the, the people. I mean, if you can't get them on racketeering, then maybe you can get them on money laundering or, or something like that. So, so just being really creative and you know, working with the locals. I was on a task force. The first five years I was in the FBI, I was on a task force and I worked Asian organized crime in the little Saigon district of Orange County, which is where the largest Vietnamese population outside of Vietnam are are housed. And so that, I mean, in and of itself was a great experience because you just never knew what was going to happen in any given day out there. But we just made some really great cases and and the bad guys were really targeting their own community, the Vietnamese community. So it was really gratifying to get those folks off the street so the community can have a safer, safer life. No, definitely. Absolutely. Any interesting stories that you'd like to share about your tenure in the FBI? Gosh, there are so there are so many interesting. <laughs> you know, I think one of them when I was working Asian organized crime and, and after that, I worked terrorism and I was in charge of the cyber program for Los Angeles for about 11 years before I retired. But um, yeah, uh, you know, there was a, a gangster by the name of Sonny down in Little Saigon, and he was doing everything from extortion to loan sharking to drug running to I mean, just all money laundering, all sorts of stuff. And so one day, one of his members of his his gang got shot in a drive-by shooting at a Vietnamese cafe. So now Sonny is irate and we had a wire on him. So we were listening to everything that he was trying to do. So he wound up getting someone to bring him a gun from Northern California. And he was going to retaliate against the group who shot his guy. So, you know, just having to listen to all of that and not knowing who the victim was going to be and not knowing where Sonny was going to go to shoot this guy, 
So uh, after about maybe 15 hours of surveillance in the middle of the night, um, you know, the, the guy with the gun shows up, he picks up Sonny. And then the best moment for me was Sonny getting pulled over on the 22 freeway on his way up to shoot a guy and, uh, and seeing him proned out on the 22 freeway. So that was pretty gratifying right there. Man, good timing, huh? Time he got, but he got a lot of time. I think we got him on rocketeering. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. What was it like to be a woman working in the male dominated field of law enforcement? It was a unique experience. You know, it was a unique experience. I think when I look back at the obstacles that I had as a result of being, you know, one of the only women in the room, I think I put a lot of pressure on myself to be perfect and to, you know, act in a certain way or lead in a certain way. And I took on the the leadership traits of my counterparts because that's what I thought I had to do in order to be successful in law enforcement. But the more I grew and I evolved and I promoted up through the ranks, I just realized that, you know what, I'm a really good problem solver. I'm a really good communicator. I'm a really good relationship builder. So all of my feminine leadership skill sets, I, I really, really started to rely on. And that's when I started to shine as a leader. There are times when, you know, People may me, didn't take me seriously sometimes, but there are also times where I got a lot of great information because I was a female FBI agent. So I think it sort of evened out. No, absolutely. How often do people date in the office? Like as an example, let's say you're an FBI agent, right? You're working in such close proximity to other people. You see them more than you see your significant other, your families. Is there any type of fraternization or is there any policy against it or can they prevent it? I mean, there's a lot of questions there, but I was always fascinated with that. So really it's fraternization if you're dating your boss. Uh, so that's when it becomes a problem. But for FBI agents to date each other in, within the office, uh, I mean, there are a lot of FBI agent couples in the FBI. Um, I mean, it makes it easier because when you're a woman in law enforcement, a lot of men get a little intimidated by the fact that you carry a gun wherever you go and <laughs> handcuffs and pepper spray and you're called out in the middle of the night. You know, a lot of guys don't like that. So, um, you know, finding somebody who understands that is very, uh, is, is a very good thing. So yeah, there are a lot of, of FBI couples. Um, oh. that, uh, and it's good because when one gets promoted, then the other one will get transferred to the same location as the person who gets promoted. So that works out well, but yeah, um, the, they, they frown on the superior, you know, subordinate relationships, but, uh, but yeah, you can definitely have relationships in the FBI. Yeah. Maybe some people are turned on by that, right. With the pepper spray and the guns and all the <laughs> handcuffs who knows right <laughs> you'd be surprised what people are turned on by <laughs> man i know you've probably seen it all holy moly um <laughs> what do you think as far as you know because there's a lot of talk in the media about you know the male-dominated workplace and the way men are treating women especially i mean you look at you know cuomo right now you know he's under investigation you know uh, allegations of sexual harassment misconduct you know abusing his power things of that nature do you think there's really a problem or is it overblown by the media what do you think you know, I can just tell you when I was in the military, the tailhook scandal, I don't know if you remember that, that was when a bunch of Air Force or Navy pilots, I, I forget, they, they were having a big pilot convention in, in Las Vegas and, and there was a lot of groping of the women who were walking down the hall. So I wasn't yeah. there, I don't know, but I do know that the military created sensitive sensitivity training as a result of that. And uh, so there were about 300 women who went into this 
this uh, theater and we got our sensitivity training, just all the women. And uh, they asked us all to stand up and they said, okay, if you've ever been sexually harassed, sit down. And every woman in the room <laughs> sat down. Wow. So, it's definitely there. It's very prevalent in uh, the military still. In fact, I think in 2020, maybe 20 people were murdered um, as a result of some sort of major crime, sexual harassment or sexual har uh, assault on Fort Hood. The FBI went in and did an investigation and found that the leadership did nothing to stop what was happening on that post. So yeah, so it's it's definitely prevalent. And and, and really, I mean, I work with a lot of women who are the only women in the room in my coaching practice. And, you know, you have to decide what hill do you want to die on? You know, there are certain things that are going to happen to you that you're going to say, you know what, this is the hill that I want to die on. But there's also times when we take things personally because we're sensitive to it. So, you know, we, we have to figure out which one of these hills do I want to die on? And if you want to die on every hill, you're not going to get very far. So that's, that's uh, what I talk to other women about is we have to not be so sensitive and say, well, wait a minute, did they mean this when they said that? Or just keep going, keep doing what you're trying to do to get to where you want to go and, uh, and ignore the, the stuff that is not going to hurt you in your career or anything like that. You just don't need to pick battles every day. No, you bring up a great point. You have to wonder, do different people have different definitions of what sexual harassment is? And is there a standard definition of it, right? That's a very interesting point. Yeah, well, there is a standard definition of it. I can't tell you exactly what that is right now. But, um, but you know, I mean, if someone feels uncomfortable in a workplace, they need to say they feel uncomfortable. And setting boundaries is so important. And that's another thing that I talk to my clients about. You know, if you think of any dysfunctional relationship that you've had in your lifetime. And if you go back to the beginning and if you think, okay, if I would have set boundaries in the beginning, would it have turned out the way that it did? If I would have let that person, you know, told that person how to treat me and expected that person to treat me in a certain way, would I have been taken advantage of or what all of these things would have happened within this relationship? And so I say, I tell women all the time, that when you start in a workplace, you need to set the boundaries. You need to, if you're going to laugh at the, the off-color jokes, or if you're going to, you know, or if you're going to not laugh at it, if you're going to go along with whatever's going on, or if you're going to, you know, do your job and, and, and stay out of it. A lot of decisions are made where you can set your boundaries and not put yourself in a position. But on the other hand, there are times when you have no choice but being in that position. And I don't know, you know, what's going on with Cuomo or what's true. You know, he hasn't gone to court or anything like that, but there are serious uh, issues, um, you know, in male dominated fields, just like there are anywhere in any corporation. And, uh, you know, if, if you need to report it, you definitely need to report it. Yeah, no, absolutely. So you, you transitioned from the FBI and now you are, you have an executive coaching business. You coach women in male dominated workplaces Explain to me the transition. When did that decision, when was it made to get into this field and how did it happen? How did you uh, first make that decision and then launch the new business? Well, I continued to want to write my entire career in the FBI and I've written over 200 journals in my lifetime. So I've got a lot of stories to tell. So one of the things that I wanted to do when I got out, I wanted to write. I wanted to, I've written a television pilot. I've 
you know, written a book proposal and, um, and the podcast to me is, is definitely storytelling. So I definitely want to tell my stories and I also do uh, public speaking as well. And the coaching came up because there were so many women and men that I mentored, you know, while I was in the FBI, I just wanted to continue with that because that to me is very gratifying to help somebody get over an obstacle or grow in a certain way where they can go out and accomplish their dreams. That's something that really gives me a lot of gratification. So that's when I decided I went to the coaching training and I had already been doing it. So I figured, okay, why don't I just uh, put out a shingle and, uh, and then I'll help other women who um, are coming up behind me get to where they want to be. So it's, it's been really gratifying. And then I also focus on leading through chaos, crisis, and change just because I've, uh, I've responded to terrorist attacks. I've responded to major catastrophic cyber events. And so knowing how to lead through chaos, crisis, and change, um, it helps my clients who are going through any of those things to eliminate the chaos from their lives to lead through the crisis and to understand that change is inevitable and to look at it as an opportunity. That's great. Now you're doing a lot of great work out there. I, I love it. What do you think your clients are struggling with the most when they come to you? What's the biggest area that they need to improve upon? You know, I think it's different for everyone, but I think, you know, I've heard a lot of imposter syndrome and I think that by a certain time, people should shake that. But if you're just screaming to the top of your organization and you don't have the time to sort of understand the leadership aspects of it and, and to you know, not take things personally and to create the boundaries and things like that, you know, those are the, the women that I like to help. And, and I help men as well. Um, in fact, the majority of the people that I coached in the FBI were all men. But, you know, just really just kind of creating a roadmap, helping them create a roadmap to get to where they want to be and not be just stymied every time they hit an obstacle. Because, you know, if someone says something about us, then we take something personally and then we put so much energy into being this victim of whatever somebody said. And then we call our friends and then we think about it all night long and we lose sleep over it as opposed to just addressing the issue and moving on. So, you know, those are some of the things that when people get hung up on little things like that, you know, it's, it, I come in and I help them to say, okay, let's, you know, let's give ourselves a date to stop obsessing over this and let's find a way to move on. No, it's great advice. And I know when you were in the military and the FBI and even now in your executive coaching business, you have to, you have to be a little bit tough and you have to speak directly to people and be very direct, right? And do you think that your clients and certain people would be able to adapt in a certain environment, meaning that is this something in their DNA where they're able to be tough and they'll be able to develop a really solid mindset, or is this something that can be trained and developed over time? You know, I believe it's something it's, it's when we internalize things. I, th I truly believe that internalizing things is what our biggest obstacles are, you know, whatever it is that we're internalizing and we're overthinking things or, you know, I have just seen so many super wildly talented people just get derailed by internalizing something where either they don't think they're good enough or they don't think they're, they're you know, they're, they have enough experience to put in for a promotion. And, and that's one thing that women, I mean, men are, men will put in for anything, whether they're qualified for it or not. 
But for whatever reason, women tend to, okay, do I have the qualifications? Do I have every qualification? You know, should I take one more class before I put in for something like that? Um, so that's one thing that I, I, you know, work with my clients on is uh, you don't have to be 100% ready to put in for a promotion. I mean, you can be 80% ready and that's, that's okay. So we need to follow our, the examples of our male co- counterparts and put in for those jobs that we can grow into. Yeah, giving them that confidence, right? And I know you're also working with clients about their adapting to change and sometimes their actual fear of change, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, I had a great guest on my Lead Like a Lady podcast. Uh, she was the first African-American female Navy pilot in the United States. <laughs> so wow. she's pioneer. She's in the International Pioneer Hall of Fame. And her name is uh, Brenda Robinson. And she talks about fear because I asked her, I said, when you would, you know, she could fly seven different fly, uh, planes and she would fly in, uh, land on these aircraft carriers. So I asked her, so weren't, wasn't it kind of scary? You know, you're just coming up on something that looks like a postage stamp and you're supposed to land this, you know, multi-million dollar plane onto this postage stamp. And she said, you know what, when you're prepared, when you're trained, when you are ready for something, you don't get scared, um, you know, because you're busy doing your job. So that's the best way that I can explain to combat fear is to be prepared and, uh, and do what she did. She knew what she was doing. You know, was it kind of scary? I'm, I'm sure it was, but she said she didn't even remember it being scary. She just remembered how busy she was trying to land that plane for the first time. That is amazing. I love that. And on that note, you know, of all of your career, you, know, you had obviously a great career in the army and a great career in the FBI. And now, of course, in civilian life and in the corporate world, what's the biggest lesson that you've learned or biggest takeaway from those roles that you took with you in a civilian life that's helping you navigate the corporate world right now? You know, I would say collaboration is so important and, and really knowing to, when you need to change your leadership style. When I became uh, the assistant special agent in charge for cyber and computer forensics for the largest cyber and computer forensics program in the FBI in Los Angeles, I had no technical background whatsoever. And so I was always a lead from the front type person. And when I was leading from the front with all of these cyber geniuses, nobody was following me because you know they, I didn't have the technical chops. And so really just being self-aware, that's the one thing that I really learned is to, whenever I go into a situation, I need to read the situation. I need to know what leadership style do I need to put forth in order to be able to get the best results, the most productivity, the higher, highest morale, and, uh, and also collaboration, giving everybody ownership in whatever it is that your mission is. Because when everybody has ownership in something, they wanna come to work, they wanna be productive and they're gonna have higher morale because they feel like they're being recognized and they're being respected. So I think those two things are the things that I keep with me the most is is just being more present in what I'm doing today and and, in the way that I'm serving people. That's great, love it, love it. And I have to say, I saw you recently on Access Hollywood Speaking about romance scammers is something that uh, I've heard about, but I didn't really know much about it. So I appreciate you know your perspective on it. Is this happening frequently, and why do people fall victim to this? I'd love to get your opinion on this. Oh my gosh, I'm working on 
subject on that right now as we speak. So, uh, so, nice. I, <laughs> so in, I think 2019, there was a loss, a reported loss of about $475 million to these types of scams. And I, I didn't see what the numbers were for 2020, but I do know that in 2020, sextortion went up like three times for local law enforcement because, you know, you're meeting people online instead of going out in person with them. And, uh, you know, when you're talking and getting used to each other and maybe having the flirty conversations or what have you, you know, it was being recorded and pictures are being taken. And then the person was, you know, involved in a sextortion scam. It is definitely a big, big, big scam. And it's not just some guy sitting in his parents' basement who's pretending to be somebody else. These are organizations that are working together to get these women and some men. Um, the average age, I think, is like 40 to 69 or something. But then people in their 20s and 30s are also uh, getting hit. And the reason why people are falling for it is because, you know, when you're when you're leading with your heart, you know, you want to believe in somebody, you want to believe that what somebody is saying is real. And these scammers are so good at what they do that, um, you know, they, they, they groom the people for a period of time. And then they, and then that's when they start asking for money, they make sure to kind of isolate them from their friends and family. So when they start asking for money, you know, they're not going to have other people in that, in the victim's life who are going to tell them don't do that. So um, it's definitely a, uh, a, an expert, <laughs> experts are doing it, uh, scammers, and they're making a lot of money as a result of it. And these uh, poor victims who are just looking for love are, are right. definitely uh, losing on a lot of money. Yeah, they're preying on people's emotions and wanting to be accepted mm -hmm. and whatnot. But, you know, it's funny. Somebody I worked with a couple of years ago, he ran a marketing company and he told me one day we we're sitting in a conference room. He said, man, I got this email from somebody who said they, they hacked into my computer. They saw that I was watching all this porn. And they said, if you don't send us X amount of dollars, you know, via wire transfer, that we're going to release this to all your contacts. And the guy paid them. I couldn't believe it. But it, yeah. that's another big scam. I don't know if you've heard of that. But uh, oh yeah, yeah. No, I get emails like that uh, all the time. <laughs> yeah, it's just they just send them to whoever. I mean, it's just they get an email list and just say who's going to fall for this, right? It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's not just on um, dating sites. I mean, they're going on to gaming sites as well, like uh, Scrabble and Words for Friends or whatever that uh, that game is. Wow. Approached several times on LinkedIn, and I that had never happened before. So, so they're pretty much everywhere. Yeah, I know there's a rise in LinkedIn for sure. Well, Gina, it's been fantastic. Any uh, final thoughts? Any words of wisdom you want to share with the audience before we wrap up? Well, Brian, I would like to. I have gifts for your audience, and if they go to my website at GinaLosborn.com, I have two free eBooks, and one is uh, called "Eliminating Chaos from Your Business and Your Life." And so, I think there's like seven tips that'll help you eliminate the chaos that you've got going on in your life. And then the other one is uh, for women who are working in male dominated fields. So there are two that can go there. And, uh, and I would love for people to visit me on my podcast, leave like a lady and uh, please subscribe. If you, if you uh, come for a visit. Wonderful. Gina, we just have one last question. It's just a personal question to get to know you just a little bit better. So you're going to be on your own private Island for the rest of your life. You can only bring one book, one movie and one album. What would they be? Oh my gosh. <laughs> movie and an album. Oh my goodness. A book, a movie. Okay. The movie is A Star is Born with Chris Christopherson and Barbara Streisand. I know okay. that. Uh, the album. Oh my gosh. 
how long are you going to wait for me to figure this one out? Can I come back on another, on another episode? <laughs> That's the toughest one. huh? <laughs> <laughs> and the book. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, probably. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to have to think about that one too. All right. So you're pleading the fifth. You're, you're exercising your yes. right to uh, not incriminate yourself, right? <laughs> yes. But I will be watching that movie over and over again, probably. Hey, there you go. All right. There you are. Gina, it's been great. How do people get in touch with you, connect with you, learn more? Uh, they can connect with me. I'm at Gina at GinaLOsborne.com or uh, go to Gina L. Osborne. Uh, that's my website. Gina, it's been wonderful. Have an awesome day out there. And definitely keep up the good work. You're doing great things. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Thank you for spending time with us today. We encourage you to join the many businesses that we have helped to achieve their objectives, align their departments, and increase their revenue. You can start by reaching out to us at results at onebrokencog.com. Together, we will make small adjustments that will lead to major impacts to your business, your culture, and your bottom line.